Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm so blessed by our church family. I really am. Um, just getting away and getting to see. Um, I, don't know, I love you guys, uh, and I'm so thankful for your love for for one another and for me. So, um, if you're new here, we are continuing on in our sermon series over uh, the church. We're talking about healthy church. Uh, we spent four weeks talking about the identity of the church. Who are we as God's people? Um, what does that look like? Um, so um, those sermons are up. And last week we talked about the expression of the church. Um, what is the church practically um, called to? How are we, what are we to occupy our mind with, our time with, our attention, our finances? What uh, should the church practically be doing in its everyday life? And we talked about that the first way the church is called to express itself is through the call to make disciples. The church is to express itself as the people of God through proclaiming the gospel that others might come to know Christ. Um, and that's proclaiming the gospel to all nations. And just a, this has been such an awesome sermon series for me personally. Sometimes I feel like the Lord just gives me sermons for me and you guys get a share in it. Um, but, uh, but just, uh, the challenge that I left you all with and that the Lord called me to was just a, to have three people that I know that aren't Christians to write their names down and begin praying for them. I might have an opportunity to share the gospel with them um, this past week. And man, praise the Lord. God's so faithful to operate through our prayers. Um, one of the guys that I'd written down to, to share the gospel with, I, there's many more than just three, but one of them specifically Tuesday night was able to share the gospel with. It was awesome. I was running, uh, I just got done working out. I was going to Elders meeting arrived a little late for elders meeting, but I feel like the Lord was in it. Um, but uh, was was at a place that I frequent, and uh, and he just started asking questions, and was able just to ask him, you know, have you heard the gospel? And uh, and it wasn't anything, you know, uh, amazing, but it was just the simple fact of just sharing the gospel with him. You know, just getting to sit down and explain it. And it wasn't in that moment that he came to know Christ. I, you know, it, he didn't immediately surrender, but he heard the gospel. And he knew that he was loved. And for me, that was a sign of God's faithfulness just to answer prayer. And just that he will work in and through us if we will be faithful to pray. Um, so I just want to share that for, for you guys, just for me too, because that was a challenge to me in my life. Because I haven't prayed as faithfully for those around me that don't know the Lord. Um, and that if we are faithful, if you, if you don't have several people that you're praying for, please pray and ask that the Lord would use you as the means through which he shares the gospel into other people's lives. Um, because he desires to. So um, today we're going to be talking about another way that the church is called to express itself. Uh, the church is called to express itself through the pursuit of holiness. God calls us to be a holy people, and we are to then pursue God in holiness. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter 1. Um, if not, um, you can follow along on the screen. We're going to be in 1 Peter 1, verses 20, uh, 13 through 23. The opportunity, and then we'll go ahead and read. Starting in verse 13. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So we're going to spend our time today um, talking about holiness. And we're going to ask four questions. And we're just going to kind of walk along answering those four questions. So the first question is, what is holiness? So we're going to look at what is holiness. Then we're going to ask ourselves, why do we need holiness? Um, How do we get holiness? And why does it matter? What practical difference does holiness make in our lives? So the first question is, um, what exactly is holiness? Um, The word holy is actually pretty hard to define. You know, it's one of those Bible words that we throw around a lot, but most of us really don't know what it means. Um, You know, the Holy Bible, we kind of say, yeah, we should be holy, but we don't know really what we're talking about when when we say that. Um, So the word holy can't be understood except for by its source. And so when you talk about what holy means, you have to go to the Holy One. You have to start with a source because God is holy. And by his holiness, he defines everything else that would be holy. And so what does it mean that God is holy? Um, Well, the word holy means set apart, right? That's part of what holy means. And so God is set apart. God is unique. And what we mean by that is that God is in a class of a being of which there is no other. God is rare, Right? There is not another one to be compared with. And so there is nothing that we can compare or classify God because he is one of a kind, unique in every aspect. And so in that words, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to understand it because there's nothing for us to compare God's holiness to because he is completely unique. God's holiness isn't just that he is set apart from the world, that he is its creator, um, but God's holiness is also his perfection. Right? It means that God is entirely pure. There is no stain. There is no hint of evil. He meets every requirement by his perfection. It, this is why we have the idea of white when we think of holy. Right? We think of something spotless, of something completely pure and blameless. And this is what God is. And you see, this isn't because God meets some standard. Right? You know, we think of holiness oftentimes as our ability to meet a list of do's and don'ts. I need to do these things, and if I can do these things, then I can be holy. But you see, God isn't like that. God doesn't just meet a standard or meet the law. God, the law be, is holy because it meets God. God is holy from the very essence, from the very bottom of who he is. And everything about him is holy. Right? His, so his, his love is a holy kind of love. His grace is a holy kind of grace. It is set apart entirely. His justice, his mercy, all these attributes of God are holy. His holiness defines everything about him. But it's not just that God is set apart and not just that he is morally pure and stainless. It's also that he is permanent, that he is enduring, that he is ultimately valuable. Think about it. What makes gold or what makes diamonds valuable, right? You know, I 
not too long ago bought a diamond and they're fairly expensive. Um, and so most of us, gold, diamonds, right? They, they're expensive. They hold value. Why? Well, one of the reasons is because they're somewhat rare, you know? I mean, they're, they're frequent enough to where you can find them, but there's a, they're rare. But also a big reason um, is there's an outward beauty about them, right? You look at gold, you look at diamonds, they sparkle, right? They have an appealing beauty about them. But also they endure, right? That's one of the things is there's a sense of permanency about gold and about diamonds. And as good as illustrations can come, this is what makes God so holy is because he's beautiful. God is more beautiful than anything that we can imagine. Everything is but a dull reflection of his beauty, and God is ultimately valuable, more valuable than gold and than diamonds and anything that this world can offer because he is more permanent. God will be around when everything else vanquishes and is but dust and but ash. God is, is permanent. He never dies. He never ceases. He endures forever. He's ultimately valuable. Holiness in the Bible is the only attribute of God that is used in what's called the superlative, right? So there are different ways we highlight things of importance, right? We can underline them a bunch of times. We can put up like five exclamation marks. We can send emojis. You know, we can like do all kinds of things to kind of highlight why something is important or what makes something important. Well, in the Bible, they had all, they had those ways too, but one of the unique ways that they would do, especially for Hebrew, is that they would use repetition, they would use repetition to show that something is important. And so when Jesus comes and he says, right, truly, truly, I say to you, or amen, amen, right, he's highlighting that what he's about to say is of great importance. It is of great value. But only the word holy is used in what's called the superlative, in the absolute sense, in the most complete sense. And you see it three times. You see it when Isaiah encounters God. He's brought into the throne room in this vision. And he says, holy, and, and the angels cry out. Isaiah is there and he hears the angels cry out. And the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And again, in Revelations uh, chapter 4, verse 8, John has taken up a vision. And he once again hears the angels proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. God is holy other, uniquely set apart from everything that we understand. In some senses, God's holiness is his inability to be fully comprehended or understood. It makes him uniquely him. So God's holiness is his ability to be set apart. It's his moral purity. It's his infinite value and beauty. It's all of these things. What about holiness in other things, right? So we see holiness is also in other things. We see it whether it's in people, places, or objects. Um, in the Old Testament, we see that there are holy shovels, right? There are holy garments. There's all kinds of these holy things. Well, what makes them holy? Well, it's not that they have any moral value. It's not that they're doing a great job. You know, it doesn't, it's not a holy shovel because it does a good job at digging, right? It's, it's a holy shovel because it's designated in its use, because it's related to God in a specific and unique way. And this is the same thing for places, right? You had the temple, or you had Moses when he goes to walk on what's called holy ground. He had to take his shoes off. What made it holy is it was, it was related and uniquely related to God in a specific way. God's presence was there. 
And we see that now we know that there's not a whole, one holy place because God's presence is in his people, and so all places are holy. But we also learn that what makes people holy? What makes people holy is that they're related to God in a specific way. Only by relating to the Holy One can anything be holy. There's no holiness outside on our own. And this leads us to our next question is, why do we need holiness? All right, we've learned a little bit what, about what it is, but why do we need it? Well, we need it simply put because we are not. Right? We need holiness because we are not holy. And we see this in First Peter. Um, and uh, if you look with me in First uh, Peter, uh, I think in verse 18, he talks about, he says that uh, in verse 15, verse 14, as well as verse 18, he talks about as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then in verse 18, it says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And the, what the scriptures teach and what we know by experience is that we're not a holy people, is that we're sinful both by birth and by choice. This is inherited from our forefather, Adam, who passed down this brokenness. And we commit sin by choice as well. It's not that we're given this blank, this blank slate and we mess it up. It's that we're already given a slate that is, that is broken and we continue to add to the ledger. We continue to incur a debt. And so we're not holy. I was uh, watching uh, the new movie. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it. Ben Hur, um, you know, remake an old classic, 1959. I'll let you judge and see if you, whether you like it or not. Um, they, they have Jesus in a piece of it, and one of the things I thought was really interesting is there are some parts where they were faithful to Christ's representative. There are other parts where they weren't so much. And there was one piece where Jesus turns and basically says, "Well." Human nature is just essentially loving. It's essentially good. And it just stuck out to me is that that's often what our culture believes. That's often what we kind of default to is that we think that we're basically pretty good people. And only when you realize that we're really unholy, only when we down to our motives and the depths of who we are do we realize our need for God's holiness. And, and compare this to what Jesus actually says. So when you turn and you look in Mark 7, um, Jesus has just taken the disciples to Gennesaret, and uh, and they're encountering the Pharisees. And Jesus' disciples aren't eating with what's called washed hands or ceremonially cleansed hands. It's a little different than us. You know, you see somebody that doesn't eat with their washed hands, and you're like, that's disgusting, I'm going to get germs. That's not exactly what they were thinking, right? They were thinking more that it was ceremony, right? So when they were cleansing their hands, it was a sign to God of purity. And so the disciples weren't washing their hands. And so the Pharisees are getting all uptight about it. Right? They're getting really frustrated. They're saying, hey, why aren't your disciples eating with cleansed hands? And Jesus then kind of shows their hypocrisy. He says, you, you invalidate God's word, and God's law, for the traditions of man. And then he unpacks where evil really comes from. He talks about where unholiness really emanates from. Uh, and in Mark seven twenty through 23, he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. You see, Jesus says that what is our problem is it our heart, is that we are, in essence, unholy. We are separate from God. And you see, this should cause us to tremble. When we realize that God is a holy God and we are not holy people, what this did when people encountered God is it caused them to fear. 
it caused them to quake. When you have Isaiah encountering God, he cries out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. He, Isaiah was a, was a pretty faithful guy before that, right? He's, I mean, he's in the priesthood. Like, he is seemingly from the world, doing pretty well, and as soon as he encounters God, he immediately realizes that he is not holy. But he also realizes something else that he desires and needs to be holy. And so if we encounter God just by being in his presence, we immediately realize our lack, what we don't have because of our comparison. It's much like many of you guys were watching the Olympics, right? You see the swimmers, you, you know, you look at Michael Phelps, you look at all those people, you know, Em and I were talking, we were like, what would it be if they just had a separate lane for like some random Joe Smo to like swim? You know, like, they just put some other dude in the lane, you know, and they're like, go for it, buddy. Like, you would instantly realize, like, that dude stinks. And you would realize, like, they're really good, right? And so you'd be like, all right, so he should not be swimming, or he needs to go, like, practice for the rest of his life. Um, and when you're, when you're in the midst of greatness, you realize your lack of it and your desire for it. And this is what it means with God, is that when we encounter God, we see his greatness, we see his holiness, his beauty, his splendor. And we see that we lack. But we also see that what we really desire, we see what our hearts are longing for, is to be partakers of this holiness, of this grandness, of this moral purity, to be set apart as he is. So how do we get holiness? How do we become holy as God is holy? Well, there's two things I think that we need to see. First is that holiness must be a gift that we receive before it's a life that we pursue. Let me say that again. Holiness must first be a gift that we receive before it is second, a life that we pursue. So when you look back in verse 18, it talks about this idea that we are ransomed from our feudal, the feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers and this word ransom, what it means is it means to be bought back. This implication of being bought back means that we need to be bought back, that we are enslaved. Right? The idea is that we are captured. We are enslaved in shackles by sin. And we are under God's wrath, deserving of justice. And we need someone to buy us back. This means that we can't buy ourselves back. Right? We don't have the currency. We aren't loaded with the kind of dough that God wants to get out of this situation. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many good works you think you've accumulated. We need someone outside of us that can rescue us. Whenever I think of the idea of ransom, I always think of C.S. Lewis and his book in the Chronicles of Narnia. He has, uh, if you haven't read it, they're great children's books as well as for adults. Um, but he, in the story, they encounter this new world. Edmund and Lucy and the, and the gang, they encounter this new world. Um, there, there's four children. Edmund is, um, is kind of the bully of the group. And he and stumbles into Narnia and encounters the White Witch. The White Witch has been ruling in Narnia for over 100 years where it's always winter, never Christmas. What a sad day. And, and Edmund befriends her. She befriends Edmund and he is deceived by her. And he follows her and he, she tries to trick him into giving up his family. And when he's not able to procure them, she turns on him in rage. Aslan, who is the Christ figure, is leading the children has come back to rescue Narnia from the White Witch. And when Aslan discovers that the White Witch has Edmund captive, he sends out a rescue party. 
and they rescue Edmund right before there's to be a great battle between Aslan and the White Witch. And as, uh, the White Witch calls a, a truce. She asks for parley and she asks for terms with Aslan. And so the two come together and the White Witch tells Aslan, she says, you have a traitor in your camp. You have one who has violated the laws of deep magic and his life is mine. I deserve and should have the right to take it and to kill him. And Aslan barters with the white witch. He gives his life for Edmund who had betrayed him and betrayed his family. And it's such a powerful scene when you see Aslan, this powerful lion, full mane, who comes up in the midst of all these beasts and demons mocking him, yelling at him as they begin to shave his mane and tie him up, seeing the power that is submitted in this moment of voluntary sacrifice as he gives himself. And the white witch taking the knife, putting it into his heart, and Aslan taking his last breath, only to hear the white witch whisper, you haven't won anything. I will still plan and kill Edmund as well as all the others. And Aslan gave his life to ransom them back. To see three days, right? We know Christ three days later, and the next day we see the stone hinges split in two, and Aslan is resurrected because there is a deeper magic. One that says if one who is blameless gives his life for the guilty, that the laws of time will work backwards and his life will be restored. And this is what Christ has done for us. Though we who are unholy people and have offended a holy and righteous God. He came in Christ to ransom us, to buy us back at the cost of his life, that he who was holy became as one unholy, so that we who are unholy might become the holiness and righteousness in Christ. What this means is it means that our holiness, when we place our faith in Jesus, if you're here and you're not a Christian, when you place your faith in Jesus, he declares you as holy because of Jesus' sake. For his sake. And this is what it means. The gospel uh, and, and the scriptures call us saints. Literally it means to be holy one. That we are sanctified. And so this is a declaration. It's a status that is given to God's people. And as well as to God's church. That we are holy. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 1-2. It says to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both both their Lord and ours. You see, that we are sanctified, we are made holy in Christ Jesus by faith. And that this gift, this status as sons and daughters of the King can never be taken. So holiness must first be a gift that is received. But it's also... It is also a life that is to be pursued. Holiness is not something where we sit back passively as if we've received a gift and we have no part in it. What, one of the things that challenged me as I was reading this, uh, as I was preparing for this message and reading the scriptures over is how much emphasis is placed upon pursuing, striving after holiness. That is something we are to, to go after, to drive after. And so I want to look at what are, how practically do we pursue holiness in our lives? Um, honestly, in prepping for this, I was kind of overwhelmed because the scriptures are all about this. I mean, when you read the Bible, you pick it up and it's all about sanctification, the process of being made holy. And I had my own ideas as I was kind of like preparing. I was kind of like, you know, I'll talk about this. I'll talk about this. And then I started to really exegete first Peter. 
I started to get in the scriptures and let the scriptures speak for themselves. And it was crazy because it started to change and, and bring up points that I never would have thought of. And this is why it's so important to get behind the scriptures in your own time with the Lord, rather than just to follow someone, is to let the scriptures speak because they begin to clarify and bring up things that we would never have thought of. So the first thing that, that drive or the first thing that we see that helps us to pursue holiness um, is our hope. Our hope. Um, our hope is what drives our holiness. And we see this in, uh, in verse 13. It says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace, fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about that what will drive your life, what will drive your pursuit of holiness is the hope that you have. I don't know about you guys, have you ever um, gotten GPS wrong? Right? Have you ever been driving someplace and you enter in a coordinate and then it like takes you to the opposite place? It's like, you are actually going to Dubai, 1,300 miles away, you know? And you're like, that is not exactly where I'm going. Or you, you we had this at camp, we were driving the youth up in, in the van and uh, it wants to take you a different route, you know? And it's like, no, I don't want to go that route. Stop it, GPS. Like, you're being really annoying right now and it keeps doing it, you know? And it keeps like fighting and arguing with you, even though you know the way you want, you know? And, and this is, this is what's true. When you set the destination, when you understand where you're going, it affects the journey. It affects your present reality. And so where your hope is, is going to drive and define what you pursue in your life, what dictates you in your life. And think about this, man, this is so true for us. What have you hoped for in your life? What has really driven you? You know, when I think about me, there's oftentimes where education is what drives us. You think about high school or college, getting a good education, maybe even a master's degree, right? You have this hope that through education, you're going to get the kind of life that you've so hoped for, that you have so desired. What about marriage or about fulfillment, right? We have these hopes and these dreams that these things and that pursuing this and and that I, if I dress like this and I act like this, if then I hang out with this crowd, then I might get this kind of person or I might fully be accepted. And when we get older, right, what is the hope? Maybe it's a style of living. I want to have a quality of life that looks like this. Or I want to have retirement that has this, this much saved. And we have these hopes that begin to define our current reality, right? We begin to budget this way. We begin to spend our time this way. We begin to research in these kinds of ways. Because what you hope in affects what you do right here and right now. What Peter says, he says, put your hope fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the coming of King Jesus. What you hope for truly and fully is the return of Christ. That when he comes, how much you have saved in retirement, the style of life and living that you have, doesn't mean anything. Serving him and living unto him will mean everything. He says that this is a struggle. Right? He says that you need to prepare for action, that you need to be sober-minded because this isn't easy. Right, this idea of preparing for action, I think of like, you know, when you are getting ready for a battle, you're running through what's going to happen. What are the different situations? You know, when you saw the Olympics, man, when you see Michael Phelps, you know, sitting in there, he's going through his mind. What's going to happen? The laps he's taking, the turns that he's going to face. And this is exactly what it means for us is that we are going to be challenged with the different hopes of this world. They're going to seek to capture our heart. Right? Retirement, having 
you know, a, this kind of lifestyle, having these kinds of material things, whatever it is, having this, this type of relationship, they are going to begin to, to creep in. And it's going to be a battle to remember what our hope is fully in, that our hope is in the coming of King Jesus, and that everything, every other hope is subordinate underneath him, finds its place underneath that. He says, be sober-minded. And what does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, it means to be the opposite of drunk, right? Someone that is drunk does not think clearly. They don't understand reality, right? They're walking in a deception. Oftentimes, they're not able to walk straight at all. And so what he's saying, he's saying, be sober-minded. Think clearly and truly about reality. Because the temptation is that we become drunk with the things of this world. We become drunk with the materials. We become drunk with the relationships, and we forget our ultimate hope. We don't think clearly and truly about things of eternity, that a life given over for the kingdom is the best of lives, and that we lose nothing. When Christ appears and when we are resurrected, there will be nothing that we have given up that we will miss, but instead we will be clothed with something that's far more beautiful, far more exhilarating, far more valuable than anything that we could have hoped for in this world. This kind of hope, having your life fixed on this kind of destination, it will drive your holiness. Because the temptation when we don't want to pursue holiness is that we want to gratify ourselves here and now. The hope drives us because we're able to say no to things. We're able to deny ourselves that we might wait for something far better. So we see that hope drives our holiness. The next thing that um, we see is that um, our fear of God protects our holiness, right? Our fear of God protects our holiness. We see this in verse 17. It says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I want us to notice first that we're exiles. This is not our home, that we have a far better home that awaits us. But notice what he says. This is right after he says, be holy as the Lord is holy. And then he uses the judgment of the Lord, which is kind of different. You wouldn't necessarily expect that. You would think that there would be something else, but he uses the judgment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and it's used to protect our holiness. Now, when I think about this, you know, going along with the whole car illustration, you have a destination, you know, that drives you, that sets the plane of how you're to go, where you're to go. The fear of the Lord is guardrails. Right? It's guardrails to ensure our drive, to ensure that we're going on the right path. Right? The fear of the Lord, the Proverbs talks about that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And God is not, God is impartial. God does not have favorites. God looks upon all and he sees what's in the heart. And as Christians, we know ultimately that, that God is not going to judge us and condemn us because of Christ's sake. But we do know that as Christians, we are still going to face a judgment, that we are going to be seen according to our works, that we will be rewarded or not, that we will not face punishment, but we will be a lack of reward, and that God still continues to purge and to cleanse his people, that he disciplines us here and now as an instrument of his judgment in our lives. We see this in Hebrews 12.10. It says, For they discipline us, speaking of parents, for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, being God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. God's discipline in our life takes different forms. Sometimes God takes away peace in our lives because we know that we're not obeying him. Sometimes God changes situations in a way that we know that we need to submit because we've been running in rebellion. 
Sometimes God uses people and he puts us in the church and the church offers encouragement and accountability. There's sometimes where he uses his word and we read his word and we are confronted with the unholy actions and lies and motives that we're living. But God uses these things to guide us, to guard us from ourselves. Because what happens if we don't have guardrails is sometimes we get tired and we start to drift over into oncoming traffic, right? We, we wander. We are a people that wander. We're like sheep and we wander from the shepherd and we begin to endanger ourselves and others. You ever seen that? You ever seen somebody get tired and they start to kind of like drive over and swerve into another lane? Not only are they putting their lives at risk, but they're also putting other people at risk. There are guardrails on the highway to ensure, hopefully, you know, good highways, that they're not going to cross over into the other lane. And this is what the fear of the Lord does, is it God hopefully helps us to see this is what your sin's going to lead you to. Do you understand that your sin is going to lead you into this way? This is one of the ways the Lord used to rescue me from pornography is that I saw what the next step would be. I saw how it would take over my life and how it dominated the lives of others. And God can use this in your life oftentimes to help you realize that if there's not repentance, if there's not turning, that your life can be consumed and dominated by sin and that he would spare you of that. That he as a loving father would rescue you before you face that kind of, of pain of suffering of hurt you know practically look this i remember a time where this looked like for me and my my own personal father uh when i was a senior i had senioritis when i was a junior i still had senioritis and uh and i did not like to wake up early and so waking up for school at like 5 30 was just torture uh, and so there are several times my mom would like you know it would wake me up really nice and and be gentle and I literally would wake up and totally forget that we had a conversation and pass back out again and she didn't believe me but it really would happen and so I remember one uh one morning where she had just had it with me she was like that's it and so she called my dad you know uh, my mom and dad are divorced but they were still on good enough terms apparently for this and uh she called my dad and she put the my dad uh on the phone next to my ear and all i heard in my like halfway asleep is that if i come over there i am pouring a bucket of cold freezing water on you and it and i was like but uh but like you know i'll be up and he was like i don't care if i drive over there it doesn't matter if you're fully dressed you're getting a bucket of water and so he's like you got like you got a minute to be out of bed and dressed as you can imagine, that put some impetus behind me getting out of bed very quickly. It moved me when I realized the consequences coming from my actions. Um, and that moved me for at least another couple months. Uh, and I just use that to illustrate is that there are times where our Heavenly Father will help us to see through His Spirit, through His people, through His Word, that what's coming in our life the discipline that he might bring, that he might spare us, the consequences. And sometimes it will hurt, sometimes it will be difficult, but he does it because he loves us, that we might share in his holiness. The fear of the Lord is guardrails that guides us on our journey in our pursuit of holiness. The last thing that we see is that um, our love for God fuels our holiness. Right, So going on once again with the, the illustration is that we have guardrails, the fear of the Lord, we have hope as the destination, and our fuel that ensures our continual pursuit of the Lord is love, is love for the Lord. Have you guys ever run out of gas before? 
I know I have several times. One of them was awkwardly at Taco Bell. <laughs> we, I was with, uh, I was with a couple buddies and, uh, and I was like, man, I'm on empty. Like I am gonna die. And they're like, no man, you can make it. You can do it. And so I was like, all right. So we went through the drive through lane in Taco Bell of all places, like the worst place. And we get there right before the checkout lane, right before you're about to like pay and it dies. And I like turn them like, you've got to be kidding me. And so we get out and we start trying to push the car, you know, like we push the car to the side and we got, I mean, it's, a, I was in a small college town and so pretty much I had like five buddies in a row that just drove past me after that and they just start laughing at me, you know, because I died and I didn't have gas to make it. And so we're pushing the car and it is difficult, you know, but how often does this happen in our lives with the Lord? You know, we, we're going and we know that we should be holy. We know that we shouldn't, we shouldn't watch this much TV. We know that we shouldn't be consumed by finances. We know that, that our steadfastness shouldn't be in the, the relationships around us, that it should be in Christ. We, we see all of these things, and we want them, but we just feel dry inside. We just feel empty. The motivation, the, the gas to make it through just seems not to be there. And it's because we have to realize God's love for us before we're then to turn and love God in return. First John 4 talks about it. First John 4, verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. I just got back from Orlando for just a little retreat with Em and I. And one of the things that the Lord freshly reminded me of that is the need to be alone. Not just with my spouse, but with him. That oftentimes the reason that we're not loving God is because we don't stop and realize that we're loved by him. Is that when you have time set apart and broken away for him, then you realize and he begins to wash over his presence and his love in your life being with his people. Because it's so easy, I mean, realizing in marriage and it's so easy with our relation with the Lord to be so busy, to be so distracted, whether it's jobs, whether it's relationship, whether it's entertainment, we have so many things that vie for our attention, that vie for our heart. And we become this broken, divided people. It's only when we're able to say no, we're able to be with the Lord. We're able to be in his presence. We're able to hear his voice through his word. We're able to pray to him and lay our burdens down at his feet. That we are able to then return love unto him and unto others. And you see this, that this love isn't just an emotion. It's not just a passing feeling. That this love is marked by action. You see, the love for the Lord begins with an earnest desire, but it manifests itself in concrete lives lived, in actions towards one another. Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There is no such thing as loving Jesus and forsaking his commandments and doing as we please. To love God is to obey God and to follow after God. 
This is what we see in First Peter, verse one twenty-two. He says, "Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart." He says that when you obey the truth, when you not only know the truth, but when you obey the truth, it actually begins to purify your soul. You see, when we, when we become simply hearers of the word and not doers of the word, we deceive ourselves. But as we put God's word into practice, as we are generous people, as we do sacrifice and give of ourselves, it begins to have the cyclical effect. It begins to purify our soul. And then that purity then leads us to be more zealous and more full-hearted in our passion, our drive to love God and to love others. That it, it creates a spiral as we pursue holiness deeper and deeper, where our motives and our actions fuel one another until we finally, one day, will reach the destination where we will be holy as he is holy. Now, there's so many ways in which this applies, and I I took the approach more of sharing ways in which we are to pursue holiness rather than categories. What I mean by that is that the Bible talks about that we are to be holy in how we work, that we're to be holy in how we relate to other people, that we're to be holy in how we express our sexuality. Right? Holiness is defined all of our life, and there's tons of categories. But how you pursue it is through what you hope in. It's through... Understanding the fear of the Lord and his discipline in your life, his his guardrails, and through loving him as you understand his love to you. So what difference does holiness make? Right? What practical difference does pursuing holiness and being the people that are holy make around us? Well, the first one is that it matters a great deal because our holiness is what represents Christ to the world. Jesus talks about it like this. He says that you are a people, a city on a hill, of lives. But as our life with what we say, it authenticates the gospel. It authenticates God's presence in and through us. But it also, it, it convicts people, right? Jesus in John, he talks about that the light has come into the world, but the darkness hated the light. And so as we are the light, it does, it reveals the darkness around us. And that does two things. One, it's going to bring persecution. For Jesus, his holiness, it brought persecution because the world didn't like it. The world didn't like the light that he brought and that he was shining a light on the evil practices that they were doing. And so you're going to have people, as you pursue holiness, they're going to persecute you. Don't imagine that the pursuit and the life lived of holiness is going to be an easy route. But instead, it will be marked by suffering and persecution. But it will do also another thing, is that it will be the fragrance of Christ to those that are being saved. Is that there are some that will see the holiness of the church, that will see the holiness of people, of Christians, and they will be attracted to it. They will see their need for a savior and they will desire to have what you have. And Christ will use that to lead them to himself. Our holiness matters. It matters to this world deeply. Not only this, but Jesus says that, that we are the salts of the earth, that our holiness helps preserve the society around us. Oftentimes we wail at the way that our society is right now. And we look at the evil and uh, we look at the scandals and the brokenness and we deprive it. We get angry about it. But we don't stop to think about that, well, maybe one of the reasons society is the way it is is because the American church hasn't pursued holiness like she's called to pursue holiness. That as God's church pursues holiness, chases after him, becomes a people that are holy, it actually begins to maintain 
and preserve the good of the society around. It would attract people, it would draw people in. We are called to preserve. And the last thing is why it makes a difference is practically in your life, that, practically in my life, that as if we pursue holiness, we get freedom. We get freedom and we get joy. I've seen in my own life that as I begin to pursue Christ-likeness, as I be, begin to pursue holiness, is that the sin that I struggle with begins to lose its power. Right? We believe that when Jesus saved us, the, the penalty of sin was taken off. But the power of sin still is here. It still has sway in our lives. But as we begin to pursue holiness, the power of sin begins to decrease in our lives. And what it means is that we begin to be free. We begin to be free from the sin that enslaves us. We begin to be free from selfishness. And we can finally love people generously. We begin to be free of pride. And we can finally put other people before ourselves. We begin to be free of greed. And we can finally give generously and lavishly as unto the Lord. You see, when we pursue holiness, we get freedom. And this freedom is an anchor of great joy. You see, what robs us of joy is the sin in our life. is this guilt of our failure. And as we pursue holiness, it brings great joy as we see God's work in and through us. Pursuing holiness is what we're called to. We are called to be holy as he is holy. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you um, that you give us the gift of holiness and you also call us to the pursuit of it. And so I pray that our identity as a holy people would motivate and move us um, to have our hope in you, to fear you and to love you. Um, Be with us, God. Reveal Holy Spirit areas in which we are um, not pursuing holiness and we're not pursuing Christ-likeness. Motivate us by your love for us. It's in your name that we pray, Christ. Amen.